Thank you. It's always, always good to be here. There's so many familiar faces. There's so many people that are here that I know that I can count on. I know Bob Gordon is just a phone call away. <laughs> Susan Caldwell, others that I will be like, okay, you have to be here of this day, at this time. They're like, what's the issue? We're here. We're ready. And I really, really appreciate that. Um, you know, we have a wonderful movement of folks across the globe working on climate justice. We have people in this state, we have people in this community. Um, and so it's just really important to know that there's other people in your community that you can rely on, that have your back, that we all have each other's backs, and that we're working for something better, for a better future. So today I'm gonna to talk about climate justice. Uh, I do not intend for this to be a sad sermon, although, there is a lot to grieve and there's a lot to mourn about what is happening on our planet, what we've done to our planet, what we're responsible for. Um, climate change discussions sometimes center on facts of coming horror or how dire things are um, or how impossible it will be to change you know, the horror that's coming. And those kinds of facts without the possibility for action or opportunities to take action really send us into a place of um, depression and denial. You know, you can't, you can't live with that reality if you don't see a way forward or see things that you can do with others to make a difference. Um, I don't think that, that fear and guilt are, are motivating emotions. I don't, I don't believe that. That's not my experience. Um, and I also really have come to believe that Cynicism is often a luxury of the privileged to be able to say, oh, well, everything's so bad. But if you're not personally experiencing it, you know, it's, it's a way to, to back yourself out of having to take action. Um, so I want to focus on hope and on action. When we talk about climate justice, this idea of justice implies that there's enough to go around, that we can have equality that we can have wholeness, that we can have a community where everyone has enough and is treated fairly and equally. Um, so when we talk about climate justice, the reality is this. The richest countries on this planet have contributed the most to climate change, but the poorest countries in the world already are and will continue to suffer the most if we don't take action. There were 262 million people affected by climate disasters in 2004, and more than 98% of them were in developing countries. Um, the big consequences of climate change, coastal flooding, food and water shortages, increased displacement of people, um, which are gonna be climate refugees, economic instability, and increased poverty. And then of course, the island nations that um, will potentially and likely disappear completely. Most of those burdens will be borne by the poorest on this planet. Um, so just to, to back up a little bit, there is some psychological research into something that's um, called the social dominance orientation, which is a measure of how much people will accept social inequality. And um, they measure this by agreement or disagreement with a series of written statements, like some groups of people are simply inferior to other groups. And if someone agrees with that statement, they're much less likely to take pro-environmental actions. And I really think that this is, is rooted in um, the systems in our country and in our world 
of exclusion and dominance, but also in a theology of exclusion. I come from the Christian tradition, and many times what I see within Christian theology, at least in the United States, is it's about drawing lines of who's in and who's out, and deciding who gets, who gets the benefits and who deserves punishment, or who deserves the suffering that they're undergoing. And we see that also in the theology of rapture and apocalypse, which is really about a chosen group of people being rescued from an earth that's going up in flames, and how dominant that is in our Christian theology. And we can see the way that that kind of theology justifies and undergirds an action and undergirds a system um, that is causing great suffering. And that's based in this idea of scarcity. You know, that there's not enough places in heaven, if you're going to be Calvinist, that there's not enough on this earth for everyone to live full and abundant lives. And so I think it's very important to come counter that with a, a theology of abundance. And yes, there's not enough resources on this planet for every person on this planet to live the kind of lives that many people in first world countries live. We simply don't have enough resources. But there is enough on this planet for everyone to have enough and everyone to have an equal share and everyone to have a full and healthy life without um, exposure to toxic pollution or poverty or any of the other injustices that, that we see. Um, so I'm going to start a little bit now going into some of the health consequences that we see um, in this country and other places as a result of um, fossil fuel extraction and the things that are causing climate change. There's a Foucault quote that talks about um, racism is the social distribution of death. And so I'll say that again. Racism is the social distribution of death. And we see that very clearly in environmental justice communities where those who live um, where there's fossil fuel extraction going on or who live next to refineries or who live next to power plants or other polluting industries literally suffer health consequences that shorten their lives, change their quality of life, um, cause their children to not even be born in some cases. So we really have a system where these health burdens are being borne by people that our system has chosen to say that their lives don't count as much as others. Um, there really is no way when we're talking about pollution, there's nowhere for it to go. It doesn't, it doesn't go somewhere and disappear. It ends up in our bodies. But the question is, whose bodies does it end up in? Uh, when you look at burning of fossil fuels, for example, one of the emissions is carbon dioxide, which is a, a, um, a climate change gas that, that raises the temperature of the earth. But there's other pollutants that happen at the same time, which are called hazardous air pollutants. That, that are produced in much smaller quantities but have much more toxic effects in the people that live near them. So when we're looking at how do we change the system from an environmental justice perspective, we have to pay attention to the global problem, but also to the local effects of the individuals. Power plants are this biggest single source of climate pollution. They cause 13,000 premature deaths in this country, $100 billion in healthcare costs annually. Coal power plants emit 84 of the 187 hazardous air pollutants. Um, and this is from the NWCP. Nearly 70% of all African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. So where we've chosen to site these power plants and how we've chosen 
um, to set up our, our energy system definitely has, has, has dire consequences. These health burdens are born not just in the power plants, but also in extraction and refineries, mostly by the poor, mostly by blacks, indigenous, and people of color. And I'll, I'll come back to this a little bit later when I talk about some specific Louisiana um, communities that are, are suffering and that are working on this issue. I think it's really important to, to ground it in the health and the consequences to, to real people because sometimes we, the image of climate change is of polar bears. And I love polar bears, but I love people too. Um, and we can't think that it's something that's just affecting polar bears or that there's you know, glaciers. But it's really pervasive throughout um, our whole planet, our whole economic system. When I first started working on climate change um, in Louisiana, I avoided it for a long time because I knew our state and I felt very hopeless about the political situation here. And then I was also afraid. I didn't want to look at the science. I didn't want to feel like there was no way forward. But then when I actually started doing research, and I looked at the economic situation, it actually can be very, very um, hopeful. The average cost of solar panels fell 75% between 2009 and 2014, and it's now 100 times lower than it was in 1977. So the cost of solar has dropped, and what continues to rise is the cost of utility power based on fossil fuels. It rises consistently equal or above the rate of inflation and has done so for the past 60 years. That's after $600 billion of taxpayer money has gone towards subsidizing industry that makes dirty power for which we now pay six times more than we did 30 years ago. In contrast, for, for solar and wind, the fuel is free. The only cost is for infrastructure. Um, fossil fuel prices fluctuate with the market, but Solar, the price of solar doesn't change, it's always free. You just have to, to build it and maintain it. Um, and the solar industry alone has more people employed than the entire coal industry. And most of that employment has occurred in the last half of the decade. And now, that was some research I did two years ago for some local work that we were doing. Um, when I started doing research for today's um, sermon, the thing that's even more exciting now is that the cost of batteries are going down. They've been declining so unexpectedly rapidly that renewables plus battery storage are now cheaper than even natural gas plants in many applications. This is according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, they analyzed data from almost 7,000 um, power projects. And so we don't even have to just try to do the right thing. The economics of it now are so that the right thing and what is actually a better investment for our communities are aligned. Um, the city of Los Angeles was planning to build three new natural gas power plants, and they've now decided that they're going to try instead to use a virtual power plant that consists of rooftop solar and batteries. So they're basically gonna use um, people's houses and the solar that is on people's houses to be able to um, meet their peak demands. Uh, and one estimate is that a virtual power plant would save almost $60 million compared to a new natural gas equivalent. So the economics of it are very, very promising. Locally, 
uh, in New Orleans, well, I guess not locally, but in our state, in New Orleans, there's a proposed new natural gas power plant um, that a bunch of groups down there have been fighting, including 350 New Orleans, the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. Um, there's a Vietnamese American Association group. It's in, the, in their neighborhood that they're going to build it. And they've been fighting that. There's a lot of lawsuits going on. The uh, power company actually paid actors to come and testify at the city council meeting about it, and they filled the room with actors, and this was found out, so it's going back for another vote. Um, and there are legal challenges around you know, violating the public meetings laws. But even there, like we're making the arguments, you don't need this new natural gas power plant, you can meet the demand with increased energy efficiency and with using solar and batteries and renewable energy instead. Okay, so what it's important to know about climate change is that this is a political fight, this is about organizing. It's a political problem, it's not a scientific or technological problem. We already have the solutions, they're being implemented in many places. The technology continues to develop, the prices of the solutions continue to go down, and we know what we need to do. We need to do renewable energy, protect our forests, transition to clean transportation, and increase energy efficiency. So it's, those solutions are out there, and that's the thing that can be, can be really hopeful. Um, so I know a lot of y'all, I'm not gonna spend much time on individual action, because I know a lot of you are already doing the things that you can do as individuals. And so what we need to build here, and continue to build here in this state, and particularly in North Louisiana, is the capacity for collective action. I do want to um, say that we do need to be aware of greenwashing. Greenwashing is when companies that have an interest in certain products or are trying to sell us something talk about the environmental benefits of their product or their facilities, but are not truthful about the actual environmental benefits and costs of what they're selling. So they can say something is green, um, but unless you're looking at it and you're looking accurately at the facts, you may you know, fall for that. So an example of that is um, you know, this idea of like cutting down trees to burn them for power because trees are a renewable resource and you grow new trees to take the carbon out of the air that those trees, that's, that's not a solution to climate. One, because whenever you burn any fuel, you create those hazardous air pollutants and the, the communities that live near that suffer from that. And two, we need to be planting as many trees as we can and not cutting them down and not burning them for fuel when we have cleaner um, and actually truly renewable uh, technologies that we can use instead. Another thing is cap and trade. I know many of y'all have heard of cap and trade policies. So that's where you put a limit on the amount of carbon pollution and the companies trade it among themselves to see um, you know, who can do it the cheapest, who can um, cut their carbon the cheapest. What ends up happening when you institute a cap and trade policy is it's a race to the bottom and the carbon pollution gets concentrated in the poorest communities. And so instead of having it be in you know, each facility having to meet their own um, permit limits in terms of what they're allowed to emit, they sell um, the carbon credits in big facilities in poor areas, in people of color communities, 
they end up emitting the most pollution. And remember, it's not just about the carbon dioxide or other climate gases, it's also about those toxic air pollutants that the people that live next to those facilities are breathing in. So there's some great schemes that are put forth by different companies or different politicians, and it's really important to look at them in a critical eye and look at them from the perspective and listen to the voices of the frontline communities that live near these facilities because they can tell you, is this a good idea or not? Is this something that's gonna have consequences for environmental health um, or you know, just be a good solution? So I think that's really important to, to talk about. I'm also really excited about the Green New Deal. One of the things I'm excited about, I'm excited about the vision um, and saying like, we have to do this, we have to tackle this and not do it piecemeal. I'm excited about the fact that it incorporates racial justice and economic justice straight into the environmental policy because they're already connected. We know that. We know that they're already connected. But we have to actually have policy that recognizes that and that recognizes the ways that historic racism, um, poverty intersect with environmental issues. Are you all familiar with the Green New Deal? Yes, I thought so. <laughs> so I'm very excited about that. And I'm also excited about the way that the um, policy folks behind the Green New Deal are interested in having the policies, the actual concrete policies be developed in dialogue with the communities that are most effective. Not a top-down approach, but an approach that's actually based on listening to those communities, hearing their concerns, hearing their wisdom and their experiences from living next to many of these facilities um, for so many years. Okay, so what to do in a state like this, where many, if not most of our politicians are climate change deniers. You know, it, it can be really hopeless in, it can feel really hopeless in this state. So we have other places, we have many, many states where, um, you know, they're, they're investing in clean energy. They have targets about how, what percentage of their energy is gonna come from renewables by a certain year. Um, we have many states where the utility companies are investing in rooftop solar and community solar and other kinds of um, infrastructure that is, you know, investing in what's really going to be the energy of the future. In this state, you know, a lot of our economy is based off of energy production, but it's the energy production of the past. And so my main concern about Louisiana is that we're going to be left behind, that all of the jobs for the energy economies of the future are going to be elsewhere because we've dug in our heels and refused to adapt to a changing global economy. Um, so while other states are investing in solar and ways to use that to stabilize their grids, use that to replace um, existing fossil fuel power plants, here our Public Service Commission has not only made it impossible to do community solar, which is where you would have like a neighborhood or apartment building um, have a solar installation where multiple people could benefit from it, because in Louisiana you're only allowed to have um, solar panels tied to one meter, so you can't have multiple families connected to the same solar system. Um, not only have we done that, but the Public Service Commission has basically done away with net metering, which is a way to increase um, access to solar and make it easier for people to get solar on their rooftops. Um, and they're, they're gonna go so far probably as to punish the folks that already have solar on their rooftops by taking away some of the, the money that they've invested in that. Um, through the way that they're um, calculating the cost of electricity 
that you consume versus what you put on the grid. It's kind of a complicated policy. I don't want to go into it, but it's the opposite of what many states are doing. Um, so here in Louisiana, we kind of have to find ways to be creative and to go around the obstacles. So I'm building a house. I'm building a straw bale house. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do in light of this fight that we had with the Public Service Commission about solar two years ago, I decided I'm going off the grid. Because what we have is we have a monopoly. Um, the electricity companies are, have a monopoly and you're forced to buy energy from them even if you disagree with where they're getting that energy and, and their refusal to invest in renewable energy. And it's not just them, it's really the Public Service Commission um, that's behind it because they have to approve all of their new investments. Um, but when you go off grid, you remove yourself from that monopoly. And I recognize that that's something that not many people in our community can afford to do. But I think that there's a way that we can, either with local governments or nonprofits, start to figure out ways to um, take whole communities off the grid, or we will be very soon in the future, and give them access to the um, having cheaper clean energy and having more energy efficient homes. So, that, so we have to be creative in the state. We can't um, win politically in the same way people can win maybe in other states. Um, another thing that I'm very excited about, and it, we'll, see if, we'll see if this works, uh, the architecture of the Clean Air Act. I was ex this was explained to me very well by a woman named Monique Hardin, who's an environmental activist out of New Orleans. And she was saying, the Clean Air Act is not designed to protect health. The standards about how much pollution different facilities are allowed to emit, they were not, they're technology-based standards, not health-based standards. So they're based off of what's the best technology that we have available right now to control pollution, not what's the amount of pollution that the people living next to these facilities were able to breathe and still be healthy. So for power plants, the, what it's called is the best available control technology to control pollution. My mentor, Jane Williams in California, she currently has a lawsuit based on this Clean Air Act provision about the best available control technology against the new power plant they're proposing to build in Southern California. And her argument is that the best technology for a new power plant is instead of putting uh, something on the stacks to capture the pollution, it's to not build the fossil fuel power plant at all and to build it with solar and batteries. So she's saying that's the best technology to control pollution. It's kind of a long shot for a lawsuit, but the consequences are if they win this lawsuit, there will be no more new fossil fuel power plants built in this country. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's very exciting. I don't, I don't know how long it will take me forward. I don't know if they'll, if they'll win it because it's kind of a stretch, um, but it is true. It is the best technology that's out there. And so if they follow their own laws, um, we, can, we can really stop, stop fossil fuel power plants, new ones from being built. The whole world is really changing and it's hard to see it from here, but so many other states and other countries have already invented solutions. They've already implemented solutions. And I think our job here in Louisiana is just to make sure that we, have, we don't fall too far behind. We kind of have to drag our state into the future with the rest of the world. And some of that is, is simply just looking at what solutions other cities have already tried out and saying, we can do that here in Shreveport. They've already done the hard work of figuring them out. 
They already have data on what works. And we just need to go you know, to our city council, our parish commission, and say, hey, we could do this in terms of energy efficiency, and it would save taxpayers this amount of money. And we can say that because three other cities have done it. Um, so in some ways, our job can be a little bit easier because other places have already done the hard work of inventing the solutions and implementing them and testing them out and coming up with um, best practices. So I think for us, the best place to start is locally with our city government, with our parish government. And I'm really excited about trying to do more of that in the future. I um, and some others recently worked on starting a new group called Action for Livable Tomorrow. Uh, we got accepted to Earth Island Institute as one of their projects, which means they're our fiscal sponsor. Um, and will so we have C3 status through them. And so I'm hoping to use that organization to build capacity for Shreveport in North Louisiana to be able to have an environmental organization that can have the staff time and the resources to find these policy solutions that have worked in other places and to bring them here and to educate our community about them and to help organize our folks here to get them implemented here too. Um, because what I've known from living here is that the folks in this community, many of whom are sitting in this congregation right now, y'all are ready to take action almost all of the time. And so if we can just get that research and that policy stuff here, we already know how to talk to our city council members. We already know how to have the phone calls and the petitions and the letters and the marches and the rallies. We already know how to do all of that here. And so um, I really believe that this is possible and this is something that we can all do together. So I'll keep you all posted as that new project is, is developing. Um, in terms of local fights, I did want to give you all some concrete things that we can do. Um, there's two groups uh, in the state of Louisiana I want to draw your attention to. One is um, the Lily Levy camp, which was a resistance camp uh, that was fighting the Bayou Bridge pipeline and is now working, I think, with some of the other environmental justice groups in North Louisiana on other environmental justice issues. The other is Louisiana Bucket Brigade, which works with frontline communities on um, protecting their health and monitoring the pollution that's coming out from facilities they live near. And they do a really amazing work. Both of them worked really hard on the Bayou Bridge pipeline. There was a two-year delay in that pipeline that was caused by the protesters and the water protectors and the lawsuits and the, all the resistance that was done. And every time that we cause a new fossil fuel project to be delayed, we drive up the cost of new fossil fuel investments. So even though supposedly the pipeline is, is completed, um, even though they did a lot of illegal things to get there, um, we in Louisiana made them pay a price for that, and that's gonna make every new fossil fuel project hard, a little bit harder. Not just here, but all of the places around the country where people are resisting new fossil fuel projects. Uh, so Louisiana Bucket Brigade has, right now is working on two new plants that are applying in St. James Parish, which is right in the heart of Cancer Alley. So you can sign up for their email list. They'll give you, you know, when to call the governor, <laughs> um, when to sign petitions, things like that. That's probably the best thing that you can, can do in Louisiana right now in terms of environmental justice is, is get on their email list and respond to their action alerts while we work to develop local stuff here. And then the Loela B camp is led by four indigenous women in Louisiana. And one of them lives here, her name is Sonia. And so if there are folks that are interested in going down and being a part of that camp, volunteering, donating supplies, going to actions with them, I can put you in touch with Sonia. And there's, it's a three hour drive from here. 
it's a wonderful place to be. There's so many amazing activists that come in and out of that place. So those are two wonderful things that you can do right now to take action. And then the final thing, many of you were part of the campaign at Camp Minden four years ago to stop the open burning of hazardous waste explosives. The song talked about how the world is ill of enterprise of war, and that's literally what was happening at Camp Minden. We had materials from the enterprise of war that were posing a great environmental threat to our community. Um, and we stopped the open burn. There was a dialogue committee. We brought in an alternate technology, but the agreement was that whatever technology that was brought in would leave, and that North Louisiana would not become a permanent dumping ground for hazardous waste explosives from around the country. And two years ago, we fought it off again because the company was trying to get a permit to stay at Camp Menden, and we won that. We got the governor to agree, and the military department, the National Guard of Louisiana, put the incinerator up for sale. And in the request for proposal, when they put it up for sale, it specifically said that the incinerator must be removed from the state of Louisiana. <laughs> All of y'all were part of that. And then on Wednesday, the National Guard um, General Curtis was testifying in a committee hearing at the legislature, and he said, we've sold the chamber, great news, and they're considering putting it somewhere else in northwest Louisiana. Oh. And I said, oh no, that's not what's going to happen. Um, so I was in the governor's office on Thursday, talked to General Curtis on Friday morning. I was like, let me remind you of what this agreement was. But it looks like we're going to fight this same fight for a third time. So, get ready. We can do this. We've done it two times before. Um, and I think it's just a matter of reminding them that this community is not going to take it. We've said no, and we're going to continue to say no. And they need to understand that the cost of trying to keep it here is going to be much higher than just shipping it out of state. They can cut it up for scrap metal. They can take that very expensive pollution abatement system and put it on another facility to help protect their air. So uh, two things. I've got postcards to Governor Edwards that you can sign. Some of them have the original RFP on the back where it says circled that it has to be taken out of the state of Louisiana just to remind them of what they said. This one says, get it out of here. Um, so if y'all can just write your name and address on there, that's all I need. And I'm going to collect them back because I'm trying to keep track. I want to get right now 100, but probably 200, 300, 500 postcards from different parishes in North Louisiana into the governor's office over the next couple of weeks. The other thing is we need to get our local elected officials, many of whom took action on this before, to pass resolutions or write to the governor about this, and so I've already started talking to folks on the Caddo Commission, hopefully the Shreveport City Council, but I need other folks who are interested in helping with contacting some of those people, talking to them, getting these resolutions passed, because when the local government says that, the company can see that and be like, it's gonna be a waste of our time to try to cite the incinerator in that parish. Um, and I really wanna make sure that, I don't think they can get it done in Caddo Parish, like I just know there's enough people here to stop it, but I wanna make sure that some poor rural parish in northwest Louisiana, that those communities don't fall victim to this, um, and so that we are able to stand together, not just in Caddo Parish or Bossier Parish or Webster Parish, but as all of northwest Louisiana, and say, you can't put it anywhere here. We're going we're gonna to refuse it everywhere, and that we help um, the places that don't have as much political power, and that we, we stand together for that. So there's things to do. There's hope. 
Um, the solutions are out there. The people are here. We just need to put it all together. And I'm working very hard over the next few years to do that. I know a lot of you guys are also working really hard on this. Um, and so I think it's really important that we have faith in ourselves and in each other and in this great movement for environmental justice and human rights and equity um, all across the planet. And that we remember our own power and remember that you know, the way that we're taught that the power lies in the governments and the corporations, but it really lies in ourselves and in our connection to each other. So be hopeful. Please sign postcards. Please help with um, contacting elected officials. And y'all, like this is, this is the time to take action, and we're here, and we can do this together. Thank you. Thank you.